All right, I'm turning this morning to Ephesians chapter number 3. Ephesians chapter number 3. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter number 3, verses 14 through 21. And we'll take for our subject this morning, Unto Him be glory. Unto Him be glory. Ephesians chapter number 3, beginning there in verse number 14. Of course, we have been working our way through this epistle written by the Apostle Paul. And we have come to the final section of chapter number 3, which is often referred to as Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Beginning there in verse 14, the Apostle Paul, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. In these verses, verses 14 through 21, there are probably six or seven standalone sermons you could preach. Just in those words, we could declare the glory of God's love. We could declare the glory of the riches of God's grace. Uh, We could talk about how the love of Christ passes any human knowledge. And we could focus on how God is able to do abundantly above, this amazes me, above anything we could ever think or ask. As you come into our church building, you see that verse is on the door. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. It's there for a reason. It's there because that is the desire of every church that truly wants to magnify Christ. We don't seek the glory of a person. We don't seek the glory of a man, of an organization. We seek the glory of him. What is this glory that Paul speaks about? What is this glory that Paul was praying about? And the glory that God is dealing with is the glory of God's power. When we think about the power of God, we can say, I I read about the power of God throughout Scripture. I see the power of God being demonstrated. But did you know that the power of God is also one of the clearest doctrines that's taught throughout Scripture? It's a clear doctrine that's taught, but it's also a doctrine that ought to be comforting. I ought to be able to take comfort today in knowing the power of God is, is unmatched. There is nothing in this world that can match the power of God. There is nothing in the world to come that can match the power of God in this world. Paul proclaims this truth about God's glory and God's power, and he demonstrates it in a prayer. Uh, It's often been said some of the greatest sermons ever preached were actually prayers. Uh, This is not a time when Paul is standing up in a fashion like I'm standing up today in a pulpit and and people are reading their Bible and they're, they're maybe taking notes. This is Paul actually praying for the Ephesians and yet he prays some of the most powerful truths that we're going to hear and it's not even a sermon. 
It's a sermon to you and I because we're at a preaching service, but to Paul, it was merely a prayer. I'm struck by the, the deepness in which Paul prays. One of the great burdens of my heart has been for years is that God needs to teach us how to pray. God needs to teach us how to pray with depth, to pray with some doctrine. Often our prayers are resorted to just simply, and again, sometimes it's not wrong. Don't get me, don't take this the wrong way. But the right way to pray is not God just make me better today. God, make me feel better. Make me stronger. Sometimes we just acknowledge my prayer today is that others would know of the same power and glory and the love of Christ that I'm experiencing. That others might know that. I found out one of the things that has helped me in my own personal life, and again, it's nowhere where it needs to be in my own prayer life, is beginning to learn to pray for others before I pray anything for myself. That's really hard to do. Because my selfishness wants what I need and what I want. And it's hard to pray for others first. But Paul is doing exactly that. He's not praying, may they be like me. But he says, may they know the love of Christ. There's a couple quick observations before we really expound more, more completely on this. In verse 14, I want you to notice Paul's posture in prayer. It's, again, it's just something that's small, but it stands out to me. He says, for this cause I bow my knees. Now realize, it's not so much his posture that he's actually on his knees. This is a sign of submission. This is a sign of reverence. You can bow your knees before the Father without actually physically hitting your knees. It's a submission of the heart. And until I give my own heart over to the things of God, I will always find myself praying first and foremost for myself rather than praying for others and that they might know the love of Christ. Again, it's not easy, but Paul is praying for these Ephesians. Paul's declaring in this prayer that not only is God good, but that God is able to work in and through the lives of His people to bring about His purposes. I don't know everything that God is doing, but I do know that God is doing things according to His purposes. I don't understand every one of God's working in my own life. I don't understand God's work every working in my family's life, in our church's life. I don't understand all of that, but I can take confidence and trust in knowing that God is working out His purpose and plan in everything that we see. As I've said often, it's easy to see and it's easy to pray when everything's going right. It's more difficult to pray when things don't seem to be going our way. But we see the glory of God's power in the act of salvation. There's no greater demonstration of God's power than in salvation through His sovereign grace. That term, that phrase, sovereign grace, has taken on a very special meaning for me over the last few years. I never fully understood sovereign grace. I never fully understood what it was to be loved by Christ. I always thought there was something that God was finding lovable in me until I realized that there's nothing lovable in me. It is God's grace alone that He finds anything of value. He treats me as if I'm something valuable, but yet it's only because of His grace that we can even bring value at all. And yet... We see this sovereign grace in Paul's prayer. Paul is praying that God's sovereign grace would be exercised in the lives of the Ephesians. The scriptures consistently emphasize this truth that it's God the Father who acted in His Son 
the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about our redemption and brought about this new life we have in Christ. Our new life in Christ. Paul, not only is he praying, but he's also teaching. One of the characteristics of a good teacher is also to provide caution. A good teacher doesn't just give you facts. He also, he or she gives you cautions, things you ought to be concerned about, warnings. He cautions us as believers against thinking about a God who has limits or a God who has faults. When I speak about a God of power, I'm speaking about a God who is not limited, folks. I'm speaking about a God who is, not, who is faultless. Everything he does is perfect. He has no limitations. That's why you, you and I love verses like verse number 20 that says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to what? According, here's the key, to the power that worketh in us. You mean to tell me that Paul is explaining that the power of God is found within us? Yes, those of us that are in Christ, that power is working and it's evidenced in us. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life today, in your indwell, the Spirit indwelling you is proof of God's power. Nobody could write a book like that. The God of the Bible does all that He wills and all He desires. He's not hindered. We think about unto Him be glory in the church. What's Paul talking about? In many ways, Paul is talking about a church should never lose sight of the power of God. Once the church loses sight of the power of God, it becomes nothing more than an organization that meets as a social club. When you lose sight of the power of God and His glory, it becomes nothing more than just a place you come and you attend on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever the case is. So Paul connects the prayer for the Ephesians and to understand the love of Christ with the power of God that's found in the church. See, God has chosen the church to be the means in which the message of this sovereign grace would be proclaimed to the world. Folks, don't ever lose sight and don't ever think of yourselves. And we have, we have learned together as this church, don't ever think of this church as small. And don't ever think about this church because we serve a God of almighty power. God is not dependent upon the numbers that are seated here today. I'm glad to see your smiling faces. I am glad to see the people that are online today. But it is the power of God that we can never lose sight of. God would do His work in spite of us. But somehow and for some reason, God has allowed His power to be demonstrated in us. When we lose sight of the power of God, we lose sight of what our purpose is. This is all just introduction to Paul's prayer. God's power is not some abstract doctrine, but rather it is the very life of a church and it's the very life of every individual believer. God's power is not just something we talk about and throw out as just that's something to believe. It's actually something to live by. Why does God's power and His glory, what does it do? It assures us that Christ will bring the work of salvation to completion. You're still a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress. I know that about myself more than you know. But you, your salvation is being worked out according to His purposes and His plan. We are being conformed into the very image of Christ. Whatever God begins in us, He will bring to completion, unlike my renovation projects during the Bible study hour today, right? He will bring it to completion. So Paul, 
knowing all that background about God, Paul brings forth a prayer of thanksgiving. And he desires above all else that the Ephesians would be strengthened and encouraged to hope. Why can they have hope? Because anything from God can be trusted. Anything from God can be trusted. Why? Because of his power and he is jealous for his own glory. Not sinful jealousy like you and I are jealous. He will not share his glory with anyone. He will not even share his glory with an individual. His glory is unto him alone. Hence we see unto him be glory in the church. Verses 14 through 18, I'm going to break this up into three different headings this morning. Verses 14 through 18, Paul deals with the riches of his glory. These are simple headings. They're not meant to be cute. They're not meant to be alliterated. If they come out that way, just simply help us see. The riches of his glory, verses 14 through 18. Paul says in verse 14, he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. We've already dealt with Paul's posture here, how it's more than just his physical location. But Paul realizes that his submission and his bowing of the knees to the Father and his Lord was the awesome responsibility that Paul had. I think Paul was often amazed at the responsibility he had to be a minister of the gospel. Folks, I can tell you today that the gospel is not something to be trifled with, and it's not something to just be manufactured and tweaked. The gospel is a serious thing that Paul says, I realize the awesome responsibility and the privilege that it is to take this message to the Gentiles. But also, Paul said, I'm also burdened for my kinsmen. I'm, I'm burdened for the Jews as well. This posture that we see Paul praying is he realizes the great responsibility and the great privilege that he has, but he also is acknowledging that he has access to the very throne of grace. Folks, remember this morning that if you're in Christ today, you have access to the throne of grace. If someone asks you, what's your greatest access to your pastor or to the throne of grace, please take the throne of grace every single time. Your greatest help is not going to come from me. It's going to come through the throne of grace. Although I love to help you, but I'm going to point you to the throne of grace. Because there's where we find help in a time of need. Not just in a time of need, because we have need every moment of every day. You ought to be before the throne of grace every minute. Often we treat the throne of grace as something we move in and out of. If you know how difficult this life is, or maybe you don't know the difficulties of life, you will know the difficulties of life. You're going to need the throne of grace. And think about the privilege that you have of even being invited there. You didn't get in on your own merit. You got in because God, through his sovereign grace, has get granted you access. Paul says this privilege is one of the reasons that we can persevere as believers. It led Paul to pray for them. Now, this is not the first time Paul had prayed. Back in Ephesians chapter number 1, verse number 15, Paul made this in his prayer. He said, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at the, his own right hand in the heavenly places. Paul considered it a privilege to pray for the other saints before the throne of grace. It's a privilege to pray for other saints, but it's not easy to do. God, I have great needs. I, we all have great needs. But Paul so teaches us here about the importance at the riches of the glory of God that he wanted the whole family of God to experience this. That's why he mentions in Ephesians 3.15 of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He, he, he proclaims God as the father of all believers, all the elect, whether they're in heaven or in earth. I don't let my mind go this direction very often, but... I've often thought about what it must be like for the believers who are already in glory. Now, don't, don't fall for the Hollywood description of what heaven is, okay? Because I, I think they, they, they're missing it. But have you ever just stopped and thought about it for a moment? What it must be like for those people whose faith has now become sight, I mean, you and I are living such a finite existence. We're living such an existence that is so focused on time. We have to be here, we have to be here, we have to be here, and we're, we've got to have this done, and we've got to have this done, and God, I need you to move now. And when we start thinking in terms of eternity, really time kind of sets itself aside. It doesn't become as important anymore. Now I realize as long as we're on this earth, we're going to be driven by time. But I've often thought, you know, those believers that have already gone on before us don't even think about time. They don't even think about those afflictions. They don't think about the things that you and I are so beset with. They are simply basking in the riches of God's glory. They are seeing things that are, we don't even know what they are. Paul is almost, and again, this isn't some new doctrine, Paul's almost praying as if he's actually seeing heaven. Because he describes that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. See, the riches of God's glory, of course, refer to the, the power of God here on this earth. But notice that Paul is asking God to grant them something even beyond that. He says that God would, would grant you this. The word grant there is more than just giving. It's the idea of, of giving with a purpose. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. Now, I think it's important what words are mentioned. Notice Paul does not say that he would grant you to be strengthened. No, he's between those commas, he says, according to the riches of his glory. That's where the strength comes from. The riches of his glory. So when I start to just, hey, Lord, strengthen this person. It's according to the riches of his glory, according to the power of God, not just on this earth, but the power of God in heaven, strengthen them. That God would not just strengthen them physically, but that God would strengthen them spiritually, that they would not faint under trial. 
Folks, your greatest need today, even as we read about in our call to worship about David's physical strength, your greatest need today is not physical strength. Your greatest need today is spiritual strength. Your greatest need is to know the power of God and to know that God through the Spirit can strengthen your spirit. He can strengthen your heart. He can strengthen even that inner part of you that nobody knows about. And He does that by His grace. I'm glad that grace was not a one-time supply. Grace is a daily. It's a daily deliverance. The grace of God from yesterday doesn't get me through today. It's the grace of God being given every single day. Paul is praying that God would be given, would give to the Ephesians strength to live for God's glory. How do we live for God's glory in this life? Verse 17, Paul goes on in his prayer and he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Notice that phrase, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Folks, that is the true source of all spiritual life. If I am in union with Christ and in union with the Father, then the presence of the Holy Spirit must be there. My evidence of salvation is not what did I pray on such and such date. My evidence of my salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You may know that you are in Christ by the presence of the Spirit. If you are a believer today, I do not have to tell you as a believer that the Spirit dwells within you. You know it on your own. I don't even have to assure you that it's there. You know He's there. That's the evidence that you are in Christ. Paul is praying for those who are already in Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, this spiritual life that you would realize that He, in fact, is the source of all blessings. He is the hope of eternal life. When Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, he makes a similar statement about them in Colossians 1, verse 21. He's, dealing, he's talking to them about Christ being the hope of glory. And he, he reminds them about what they once were. In Colossians 1.21, he says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. That's mind-blowing to me. Paul rejoiced in suffering for other people. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. And here's part of his prayer. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. 
Paul desired for the Ephesians that they would be rooted and those roots would be grounded deep in love for Christ. Folks, your great security today is Christ's love for you and your love for him. You don't have to tell someone who knows Christ loves them. You don't have to tell them to love him back. That's why Paul moves into this idea about comprehending God's love. I'm afraid that love in our day and age has been restricted to just an emotional feeling, an emotional attachment. I love because you treat me nice. I love you conditionally as long as you stay the way you are. It's based upon something that's always changing. Uh, all of us today would be honest with one another, even in our, in our own relationships. We change. Two people that get married on a wedding day are not the same people they are years down the road. But our responsibility to love them is just the same. The Lord himself, his love for us is unchanging. He cannot love you more than he loves you right now. And he cannot love you less. It's impossible for God's love to change based upon conditions. I don't have to wake up tomorrow after a really bad day of living for myself and saying, you know what, I was so bad yesterday, God loves me less. Now it ought to convict me and I to be on my knees in repentance. But even my bad actions does not lessen his love for me. And it reminds me every day when I sin, it reminds me of his great love. And how in the world can you love a wretch like me who does not pay you back with the same love you give to me? Because I can tell you now, I don't return the love in the same fashion he gives to me. How many hours in a day do we go by and don't even think about the love of Christ? We think about everything and everyone else, but we don't think about God's love to us. Again, I'm not doing this to make you feel guilty. I'm preaching to the choir this morning. How many times do we do that? Where we, hours, days, maybe months, we don't stop and think about Christ's love. That's what Paul's getting to. He says, I want you to be able to comprehend this. Comprehend God's love. To have an understanding that goes beyond regular comprehension. If Jesus resides in our hearts through the Spirit then that is the very center of our love. We know His love. He teaches us to love Him. And as we learn to love Him, folks, here's the key. As we learn to love Him, we begin to learn how to love others. You cannot love another person until you learn to love Christ properly. Most people get this order wrong. I can't love my wife until I love Christ first. That was an earth-shattering truth someone had to teach me. If I don't love Christ first, I will never be able to love even my own wife properly. I won't be able to love my kids rightly. I won't be able to love other, other believers rightly until I learn to love Christ. We come to know Him by acquaintance. We come to know Christ and His love for us by Christ through the Spirit dwelling in us so that we see Him, we hear Him, we actually know He's there. That's the kind of knowledge that surpasses all other kind of gained knowledge in this world. I can have five PhDs after my name, but if I miss the love of Christ and my love for Him, I've missed the whole thing. 
I don't care if you have five PhDs in Bible. If you miss the love of Christ, you've missed it all. <clears throat> I'm all for education, but don't let it, do not let it supplant and, and supersede the love of Christ. Paul wanted them to know the riches of the glory, but he wanted them to know about this love. In verses 18 and 19, the second heading, the comprehension of his love. Paul says that you may be able to comprehend. Simply just that they would be able with all other believers to have a greater understanding of the great love of God for us. He uses very descriptive terms. He says, and to know, to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth, length, depth, and height. Paul really gives us a powerful example of what the love of Christ looks like. When Paul talks about the breadth, he's talking about the extent. How far does it extend? There are objects of Christ's love in every nation, in every class, in every society. So when you are tempted to look at a class of people or a nation of people and say, that is one wicked nation, I want you to remember something. There are people within those nations that are the object of Christ's love. So you better be careful about who you say. Why don't we just destroy all of those people? Folks, there is wickedness in every nation in this world, including this one. I don't have to tell you that. There is wickedness on every side. There is wickedness on every corner. There is wickedness in every job. There is wickedness in every school. Sin is reigning. But there are objects of Christ's love all around us. And they're not just seated here at 3791 Petrie Road. There are objects of Christ's love. And Paul says, I want you to comprehend the extent of this. I want you to know how far it goes. That's what he means by the breadth. But he also wants them to know the length of it. How long does Christ's love last? From eternity to eternity. Those he loved before the foundation of the world, he's going to love not only through the end of this life and this world, which it is going to end, no matter what the new age religion is of the day, this world, this earth is going to end. Jesus Christ is coming again. This earth is going away. But his love will never go away. From eternity to eternity, eternity past to eternity future, has no beginning, has no end. That is the length of Christ's love. When Paul refers to the depth, he's referring to how down, far down it goes. Until you and I realize how deep we were in the depths of our own sin, is, is, that's the beginning point of when we realize how much Christ loved us. Having a favorable view of yourself will diminish your view of the love of Christ. It's only when you truly see yourself for what we really are before Christ changed us. It's avoiding those statements of, I would never have done that. I'm not that evil. I'm not that sinful. Under the right circumstances, the right conditions, you do not know what you are actually capable of. You don't know the depths of your own depravity. Neither do I. There have been many people who started a sentence off with, I would never, who did that very thing. Be careful. 
Take heed lest you fall. Pride always comes before a fall. Pride is still that overriding sin that every one of us needs to root out. Paul says, I want you to know how deep this goes. But he says, I also want you to know how high it goes to height. I want you to understand that his love takes you to these heavenly places. It takes you to glory. How Paul would describe that you're seated here, but you're also seated in heavenly places. You see, those who understand the grace of God and understand the love of Christ and the fullness of it, this should be enough to satisfy us. Someone might say, what do you need to be happy? If you're in Christ today, you should have all that you need. But our human nature says, I need more to be happy. Yes, the love of Christ is this one aspect of my life. I'm thankful to be a child of God. But do you know what Paul is trying to teach? He's saying, I wish, I pray that these Ephesians would know that Christ is enough. And not as a slogan you put on a banner. You know, it's one thing, you could come in next Sunday and I could have had a, a, a banner made and Christ is enough right across the front. And it would be a nice banner and it probably would have, it would, it would, it would generate some emotions. But if I was to really challenge us, is he really enough? Is his love really enough or is it just a tagline? Oftentimes our Christianity, our walk with God, I'm going to give you an illustration that Spurgeon that I thought was absolutely perfect about how our relationship with God often is. That we think we know the love of Christ, we think, we've, we, think we, have, we understand it and we've comprehended it, but what we really just understand is we just have a, a knowledge that God is there. But Paul doesn't say, I just want you to know that he's there. He goes on, he says in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. So he says, I want you to comprehend the breadth, the, the length, the depth, and the height. I want you to get that. But I want you to know the love of Christ. This is a personal knowledge. But then he says this most remarkable thing. I want you to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now, when I say no, we think knowledge. I know that. But he says the love of Christ passes your knowledge. That means in your humanity, you don't have the ability to comprehend the love of Christ. It's not measured by human terms. But Paul wanted them to understand more of this peculiar love that Christ had for his people and for his church. He wanted them to, he's praying for something beyond perfect human knowledge. He was praying that they would understand all of the mysteries of the gospel. How that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he assumed a human flesh, yet he never sinned. And he never ceased to be God. How that Jesus Christ actually paid our sin debt. That's a mystery you and I will never fully be able to comprehend or to know. But he wanted them to also have an understanding of righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Now, we all have an idea of what perfect righteousness is. You hear me talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ. I told you I, never, I didn't hear that term. I did not ever even hear that term until I was in my late 20s. Didn't even know it. I heard righteousness. Never understood imputed righteousness. Never understood what it meant that in order for me to be accepted to, to, with God, I have to have the righteousness of Christ. 
That my acceptance is based upon that imputed righteousness he put into my account. Paul says that that's the kind of knowledge we have to have. And the more knowledge that we have, the more that we will be flooded with the reality of who Christ is and how much Christ loves us. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5. And again, I used to preach this, preach this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 16, as something a little bit more than just a rallying cry. Trying to convince people, just grab hold of the love of Christ and do right. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's talking about this knowledge that passes human understanding. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 12, Paul says, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're, we're all dead. And that he died for all, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Paul is talking about the love of Christ constraining. To be constrained by has the idea of actually, in, it has the idea of being in shackles, being chained to, being bound to. It has the idea that the love of Christ has so taken me that it has affected the very way in which I live. I mentioned to you this Spurgeon quote that I came across of describing the relationship that many believers have when they consider the love of Christ. And I thought this was very appropriate. He says, I know many people. That is to say, I have seen them in the streets and they tip their hats to me. And I do the same to them. And thus I know them. This is a slender form of knowledge. Yet I fear it is the kind of knowledge most people have of Christ. Even such a knowledge as comes by trembling faith is a knowledge that saves. But I will tell you the people I know best. They live with me in my own house. I see them every day. I am on the most familiar terms with them. And this is the knowledge here intended. We have a familiar knowledge of Christ. But we don't have that knowledge that passes understanding of who Christ really is. How do we get that knowledge? From a book? I would say that's not where we get it from unless it's coming from this book. But do we have a relationship with Christ's love as just simply, we just kind of, again, I don't mean to be irreverent, we just kind of tip our hat to God. Say, God, thank you that you're there today. Just checking in. Listen, the love of Christ constraining is more, again, borrowing from Spurgeon, is more than just tipping the hat to God's presence. It's a love that actually moves us. It's a love that drives us. It's the love that allows us not just to love one another, but to actually pray for others and put others first. Remember, Paul is praying that other people would realize this. 
The final section here is the adoration of his glory, and I'll move quickly. He says in verse, verse 19, And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. This prayer closes with a bit of a celebration. Paul celebrates God's perfect power and his glory. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. God begins, carries it on, and finishes the work he purposed to do. When we use terms like unto him be glory in the church, we are acknowledging that it is he who begins the work, he who carries on the work, and he who will finish the work. The work of eternal redemption will be completed even beyond our highest expectation. Now, I realize this verse is often used in a terms of getting some things for ourselves. Someone is struggling and we say, listen, now do you believe Ephesians 3 verse 20 that says, now unto him that is do, able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think? God is able to do that, but that's not the actual context. The true context here is taken with what regard Paul's been talking about. That God is able to make you know the love of Christ. Isn't it amazing when you, when you preach the Bible in an expositional manner, the context starts to matter. And you can't just yank a verse out and say, I'm claiming this verse for my own. God's able to do exceedingly above everything I think and ask. And I'm thinking about that boat. Now, can he give you a boat? Sure. Is that the intent of Paul's writings? Absolutely not. I just asked you if Christ is enough. You see, it's not about getting more. There's nobody here that needs more stuff, I assure you. <laughs> no, you say, we have to see my stuff. You don't really need more. But we do need to have a greater knowledge of who Christ is. And we do need to understand that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to what? To the power that worketh in us. The ability to fully comprehend this already resides within us. This work of eternal redemption is part of what Paul had in mind. And as we conclude this and we think about this text, I, I gave that heading of adoration because what Paul is doing now is not so much a prayer, these final two verses as it is, he just simply is adoring Christ for who he is. Often people say adoration and praise are the exact same thing. Adoration and praise are not exactly the same. Somebody might say, I praise God, or we're going to now go to the, uh, the praise and worship time of a, of, a, of a service. I don't fully get that. That's beyond my realm of comprehension. I don't, again, it's that compartmentalized thing. What, what, what were we doing before? Now it's praise time, and now it's worship time, and now it's preaching time. When you preach the word of God, that is to God's praise. That is worship. When you sing the hymns, that is worship. We often associate worships when the music starts. No, for the believer, worship is 24 hours a day, seven days a week because the presence of God dwells within you. You didn't walk in the doors today and then get revved up for worship. You should have ever been worshiping when you got here. And even deeper than that, you should have already been adoring him. We don't, we don't hear, even in our 
churches, now's the time of adoration. Adoration is a bit different than just praise and worship. Adoration is something much deeper than that. Adoration is not so much seeking the divine presence, but a consciousness of who we are and who He is. I've said for a long time, what's, what, and, and I, this didn't originate with me, the reason we see the churches the way we see them is because people don't really know who God is. R.C. Sproul said that so many times, you could put that on a mug too. That's what's wrong. We don't see, and we don't really know who God is, so we live like we want. If we truly knew who God was, it would change the way we live, and it would certainly change the way we pray. Oftentimes, our praise and worship is about a feeling that we get. Adoration is understanding what Paul says. Adoration is coming to a place where we comprehend the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and know the love of Christ. You know what adoration leads you to? It leads you to a place where Paul began this prayer, on your knees. Not so much physically, although it probably will drive you to your knees. Once you realize who God is and who we are, that's probably the place we need to spend the most time. See, adoration doesn't drive you to to get more. It just simply says, listen, I'm being driven because I am nothing more than dust. And yet you love me and you have invited me into the very throne of God. Folks, every day, We need spiritual strength to persevere in righteousness. Every day, we need God's power working not just in our church, but in our lives. Every day, we need to understand that this great need from Paul, Paul shows us what God's power and glory is. Paul expresses that when we understand who God is and we understand who we are, that the greatest greatest prayer request we ought to pray for one another is that we would truly understand the riches of God's glory. We would truly understand and be able to comprehend his love. And we would certainly be able to result in adoration of him. The believer's in Christ and Christ is in us. That ought to encourage us today but also ought to challenge us to think, where is my understanding of the love of Christ? And I hope that'll help us today. Let's conclude our thinking, singing to him on 100, or 213 rather, 213, my hope is in the Lord. Hymn number 213.